0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Doing pretty well. How about yourself?
1: Oh, I can't complain too much. I'm uh, actually, as this airs, I will have already been uh, to OU and back (laughs) and on several other trips. (laughs) So lots (laughs) of travel in my future.
0: Oh yeah! Now I'm just going to Indiana to go drill a um drill an impact crater. So I'm pretty excited about that. I will have done that by the time this airs as well.
1: So and I'm sure it's something <laughs> we're going to talk about because impact crater oh, yes. in Indiana is an interesting statement,
0: isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'll have pictures and lots to say. So we'll probably have a show about that when I get back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Great. Uh, <laughs> Well, so this week we're actually really excited to be talking with Dr. Walter Smith, uh, who emailed after our GMT show and said, hey, I actually know some things about GMT as well. And as it (laughs) turns out, he knows all kinds of things, uh, GMT, satellite altimetry, and even a bit about NASCAR pit crews.
0: (laughs) Hi, Walter. Welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Shannon. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: Well, thanks for joining us. So, Walter, if you had to sum up and introduce yourself like you are on a panel in a few sentences, what would you say you do?
2: Well, I'd say I'm Walter Smith. I'm a geophysicist. That's my job title at NOAA, which is the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And I guess uh, since that's a government agency, I'd have to give you the usual disclaimer and say that in our chat today, I'm just giving you what's inside my head and you should not construe it as an official statement of policy or position of NOAA or the U.S. government.
1: All right. So we always like to ask people about how they got to where they are, how how you got to NOAA, and if there were any unexpected career turns. And from some of our chat before the show, it sounds like there definitely were.
2: (laughs) Well, yes, um, there were. Uh, I guess this is going to be a long answer, so brace yourselves. But I, I... when I was a little kid, I liked to take things apart and see what was inside them. Um, you know, if I were walking down the alley and there was a toaster in a trash can, I would just, that would make my whole week because I'd take that toaster home and take it apart and try to see, you know, what's inside it, what makes the toast, what makes the toast pop up when it's done, things like that. And when I was little, of course, I mostly just bash things apart. But as I got older, <laughs> I could kind of figure out how things worked and whether I could put them back together or even make them better. And I have a, I like to tell a story about how I got into graduate school by fixing the coffee pots. But, um, I didn't know anyone in my family who was a a scientist. Um, uh, my parents' interests ran to history and music and, and things like that. Um, and I kind of felt like a misfit in school. I had a lot of, uh, problems, uh, getting, um, the kind of long assignments that you're supposed to write a little bit each week for a whole semester. And then you have a long paper on why Fort Duquesne was important. The only thing I learned in U.S. history was how to spell Fort Duquesne. And I didn't <laughs> know what war it was in or where it was or anything. just discovered the other day that there are things named Duquesne around Pittsburgh. So that's a clue. Um <laughs> Anyway, I I ended up dropping out of high school actually because I had taken all the math and science courses it could give me uh, before I was a senior, but they wouldn't let me take sex ed until I was a senior and I had to take sex ed in order to graduate. So I just blew it off. Um, (laughs) And I got back in fortunately through the community college system in California um, because once you were an adult, you could just show up and start taking classes. And initially I took a lot of industrial uh the industrial arts they call it i took some welding because i wanted to know about that because i was in fact in the very minorest of minor leagues of stock car racing i was in a pit crew one summer um and i took some classes in what was called fluid power uh moving machinery by compressed air or by pumped oil um And I got really good at that. And the guy who was teaching those hired me and I had a great time until he fired me. And he said, I'm firing you because you don't belong here. You belong in college and you like this job too much. And if I don't fire you, you're gonna stay here forever and you shouldn't get out and go to college. (laughs) And I was totally devastated, didn't know what to do. So I put on my backpack and I hiked all over the Sierra Nevada mountains. I was trying to go from South Lake Tahoe to Mount Whitney by myself. And I made it a large chunk of the way before I encountered a bear that tore up all my stuff and he ate my mosquito repellent and my toothpaste and a a jar of uh, powdered, dried powdered garlic that I had to add to my freeze (laughs) dried food, just went through everything, ate the mosquito repellent, you know. And so I had to walk out uh, hungry, but I resolved to find out where mountains came from. And so I went to a community college, Cuesta Community College in San Luis Obispo um, and took a class in physical geology. And I learned about plate tectonics and I was hooked because I wanted to know what was going on inside the Earth that was making it go in the same way I wanted to know what was inside a toaster. So that's sort of half of how I got to where I was, but I've talked too much, so let me stop. <laughs> if you want to know, you can ask a follow-up question. How did I get from Cuesta College in San Luis Obispo to, to Manila in the Washington, D.C. suburbs? But, <laughs> but basically, that's how I started on the road as an Earth scientist.
0: I love the circuitous paths that so many people have taken. Um, I feel like maybe people think they're in the minority and I'm starting to think that that's not true at all. I mean, I had three degrees and I walked dogs for a whole year before I went back to school and I thought it was the greatest, you know, year of my life really walking dogs and working at a coffee shop. So I think that's great (laughs) to hear that other successful people do this too.
2: Well, I think so. (laughs) I think, you know, very curious, creative minds sort of find a lot of things that they like. And, uh, also, I mean, nowadays, we have all kinds of ways of explaining how and why people are not neurotypical. But in the old days, we used to just call people an absent-minded professor or something.
1: You know, you said that people that are curious and have curious minds like to get into all these things. And I think that's a really important thing to acknowledge, that there are so many people that like tinkering with things or like learning how everything works. And that might mean getting into hydraulics for a while, uh, or that might mean doing all kinds of things. So you took a class in physical geology, though, to learn where mountains came from. And then that's still a pretty large leap from physical geology to working for NOAA.
2: It is. And it's sort of wasn't planned and it it kind of evolved, there were lots of forks in the road and at each fork I took the one that looked like the most fun. And this is where I ended up and I'm very lucky to be able to say I'm still having fun after 26 years at NOAA. Um, I uh, had thought I would, because of the NASCAR stuff and everything, I had thought I would do mechanical engineering and um, that I would build a better automobile engine or something. And I was at Cuesta Community College in the San Luis Obispo area because my intention was to go to the California Polytechnic State University, Cal Poly, which at that time had a a club for engineering students sponsored by the Society of Automotive Engineers. And I thought that if I could keep tinkering with my hands and keep them greasy, that I might be able to stand the uh, academic requirements. Um, But as it turned out, I stayed at Cuesta for a year and took a number of courses after physical geology. I took historical geology and mineralogy and I did a bunch of uh, math and physics and chemistry and stuff and uh, oddly some musical theater also. Um, And uh, I discovered that that Cal Poly didn't have a a traditional earth science department. They were teaching some soil science courses in their uh, civil engineering school at that time. And so I, I actually turned down, I had an admission to Poly and physics and turned it down. And um, uh, John Bowen, who was one of the two instructors, Paul Bauer was the other one uh, who taught the geology courses at Cuesta at the time, uh, helped me out. John was an alumnus of uh, USC, the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And he kept up with them and knew that at that time the oil industry was uh, taking a lot of their graduates and, and giving the geology department a lot of money. To support students so he introduced me around down there and I got a nice uh, fellowship from the Keck Foundation that allowed me to get my bachelor's degree at USC and while I was there I took a geophysics took several geophysics courses but the first one was taught by Charlie Samus and I was just totally hooked uh, he used to have this uh this saying that would come out sooner or later in each lecture he'd say geophysics is good for you <laughs> and, uh, you know like eating Wheaties or something and I uh I had to think it really was. I just, I just totally loved that class, and so that sort of steered my direction. And I got a um, uh, Doug Hammond was teaching sort of aqueous geochemistry there, and I went out on the university's boat once to help him and his graduate student pull a gadget out of the water. Um, and he told me about a summer internship program at the Lamont Geological Observatory, uh, part of Columbia University in New York. So I applied for the summer internship, and that's where I fixed the coffee pots, and that's how I think I got into graduate school at Columbia. So I ended up with this PhD, um, but still no high school diploma. And uh, while at Columbia, I was going out to sea, um, measuring uh, depth with an echo sounder and variations in the strength of the gravity and magnetic fields of the Earth with various gadgets and then trying to interpret all that data to understand uh, what was the mechanical bending strength of the tectonic plates as they sagged under the weight of uh, big volcanic mountains, and what was the internal structure uh, of those volcanic mountains that could be guessed based on uh, how much they pulled on the gravity field and how much they were magnetized and changed the shape of the magnetic field. So it was a lot of uh, kind of um, statistics and signal processing and. Uh, Computing, which is how GMT got started, Um, but uh, also a lot of going out to sea and doing all these esoteric things. And that was pretty cool. I really enjoyed it.
1: So uh, it's one thing that I've noticed with a lot of geophysicists is a lot of them, uh, myself included, really like to, to do things with their hands, build things. And these field projects are great experiences because you always end up MacGyvering a solution in the field to get your data. Uh, and then you get to come back and work on an interesting problem afterwards.
2: Well, that's right. I think um, the field is is an exciting place to work because everything goes wrong. It's a really challenging environment for um, making measurements. I work with colleagues now who uh, go out in the field in the Arctic and Antarctic and are uh, we're trying to do things like calibrate how much uh, uh, difference in snow penetration is there between a radar altimeter and a laser altimeter for example and uh, uh, you know so they actually go out and dig holes in the snow and do crazy stuff and so getting measurements in difficult environments really causes you to call on all your own ingenuity and uh, uh, you know you know, you can't come back empty handed because it's expensive and you won't get this opportunity to be there again and so you make the most of it and that's, that's really exciting.
1: Yeah and So then you said that when you were in Lamont, uh, that's how you got mixed up with GMT and I'm assuming met uh, Paul Wessel there.
2: That's right. Uh, I had been there about one semester as a grad student when Paul arrived um, from Norway also to be a grad student. And he was a bit ahead of me because he'd already done a master's degree and I had come there straight from my uh, bachelor's. It was a time when, uh, and, and we shared an office, actually. We sat side by side for the next uh, six years or so and did just about everything uh, together. I mean, Paul is a totally cool dude. He had a much more complete social life than I did. But you know, for me, being able to sit next to Paul and write code was uh, was really wonderful. We had started in a time when we were trained to write in Fortran for uh, timeshare mainframe computers. We sat at these terminals, as we called them. They were sometimes called VT-100s. There'd be white letters on a gray background or sometimes yellowish white letters on a green background. And it was sort of a cathode ray tube, I guess, type of, uh, you know, very analog display with a kind of typewriter keyboard in front of it. And so it wasn't quite the punch card era, but it wasn't (laughs) much beyond that. And we went from there, you know, the revolution of uh, Unix workstations, um, uh, programming in C, uh, Postscript-driven laser printers—all that happened while we were grad students—and uh, um, so that's really kind of what sparked it all.
0: Man, I'm going to tell my grad students they need to get busy. That's what I came came <laughs> away from that with.
2: <laughs> well, it was fun. You know, the when we started, there was this program. Well, first of all, disk storage was was a tremendous um, problem. If you can imagine, 300 megabytes of storage took. A disc drive that was actually each disc was larger than a vinyl LP record they were bigger than sort of the largest charger under the largest dinner plate at the fanciest dinner you've ever seen Um, and there were a bunch of them stacked up so it was like a multi-layer layer cake and this whole thing then had a huge handle that sort of screwed it into something like a giant top-loading washing machine sort of sized thing, and all this for 300 megabytes. And all of the geophysical data that ships could collect as they were steaming across ocean basins was all written to this one disk um, and compacted in a sort of a horribly user-unfriendly way so that it would all fit in there. And then that disk was mounted from, like, noon to 2 p.m. on Tuesday afternoons. So if you wanted to... (laughs) get to this data, you had to you know, go down to the computer center at that time and sit at one of these VT100-type terminals. And there was one massive program written in ancient Fortran that read this disk, pulled data off of it, and made a plot for you. And it was all written in the, what Paul and I would call spaghetti Fortran, by which we meant in those days, there was a, a sort of, I think it was called a computed go-to statement. So it would say something like, um, X in parentheses, and then 20, 30, 40. And what that meant was if X is less than zero, start executing the lines of code that begin at a line numbered 20. But if X is zero, go to line number 30. And if X is greater than zero, go to line number 40. And these were in fact not counting line numbers. Those labels could be placed anywhere in the file uh, by the programmer. (laughs) And once you've done a bunch of those things, it's sort of impossible to follow the logic and figure out where you are because instead of breaking things into subroutines and saying if if you want to do this, execute subroutine that, um, things could overlap. So you could be in the middle of a calculation and in the middle of that would be the landing point that you would land on if you took another computed go statement from somewhere else. So following this was sort of like trying to follow all the cars through some enormous freeway interchange that looks like a bowl of spaghetti from the from the air Um, and so you'd make mistakes so the, the the thing would would then finally be drawing with a sort of ballpoint pen on a scroll of paper that would spool and unspool And if you had picked the wrong thing, you might be off by an order of magnitude in the scale, for example. So it might be drawing your entire drawing without ever moving the pen more than a millimeter, and so it would just tear a hole in the paper. (laughs) Or you'd be off the other way, and the pen would go whack, 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 whack as it was racing back and forth to the edges of the paper and smashing up against the sides of the machine. And anyway, if you finally got a plot out of this, it looked horrible. So then you took it to our draftswoman, Portia Tukacchin, who smoked like a chimney and and sat in a room at a big light table. And she would lay out your thing and lay plastic on top of it and then draw with uh, uh, Koenur rapidograph pens and Leroy lettering sets. She'd redraw your plot on plastic beautifully with black ink. Then you'd take that up to the photographer. And two or three weeks, three weeks later, you'd have a uh, 35 millimeter slide or an 8 by 10 glossy print or whatever. And this is how you put together your talks and your publications. And as I say, within a few years, that was all gone. We had laser writers and, and that sort of thing. And Tony Watts, our thesis advisor, went off on sabbatical. And as he was on his way out the door and Portia had just retired, he said we should try to figure out how to use the laser printer to replace uh, what Portia and the photographer had done. Yeah. And that's really how GMT got started.
0: Oh, man. Yeah, these kids have it real easy today with uh, (laughs) Illustrator. That's all I got
1: to (laughs) say. Yeah, there there was no making your plots of data the night before your AGU
2: talk.
0: (laughs) No, not at (laughs) all. Yeah,
2: and of course, I didn't know what I was doing the first time I gave an AGU talk. I was really hopeless. And uh, Tony, our thesis advisor, was a really hands-off kind of guy. He... um, he, had, he was uh, English, and he'd been trained in the English system where, um, I guess, uh, people get a little less uh, steering from their mentors than they're used to in the U.S., and he sort of left us on our own to sink or swim, and so I had no idea what I was doing, and it was really Portia who rescued me, and she said, okay, what's the story you want to tell, and I told her, and then she said, okay, you need this, 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 and this illustration, and, you know, go to the computer center and plot these things, and she ended up making the slides for me, and uh uh, I guess my first talk was probably, I don't know, spring of 85 or something like that at the AGU, and I owe it all to Porsche. <laughs> nice.
1: And that was, at that time, AGU was using, were they overheads or were they actual, uh, the cartridge slides, or what what, were you, what was the format for the talk?
2: Uh, people did both. Um, the more... I tended to think that the more polished looking speakers had 35 millimeter slides, which dropped into a carousel type uh, projector. Um, But you could also have an overhead and those kind of grease pencils that that drew on overheads, or you could bring uh, sort of page sized um, plastic sheets on which your your uh, talk was Printed your illustrations and your equations and whatever, and you could just lay one after the other on the um, on the projector. But those things tended to curl a little bit on one side. The projector surface would get really hot, so people would be uh, sweating, and then there'd be a fan blowing in the room, and so sometimes the you know they blow those things would blow right off the projector, or you'd put one down and then you put the next one down, and each one because you picked it up and put it down would be skewed in location from the one before, so it just didn't look very pretty, whereas if you had these 35 millimeter slides, they dropped out of the carousel into the projector, always in the same spot. Sometimes they got stuck, but if they didn't get stuck, the sequence of images that you were showing usually looked fairly nice. Um, The other thing about the overhead projectors was they tended to not, just not be in a good space with respect to the the screen in the room. So some mirror would be sort of tilted too much so that the, the, um, in other words, after the The things went through all the optics, the path um, from the surface of the projector to the surface of the screen wouldn't be, the ray paths wouldn't hit the screen perpendicular, if you can see what I mean. So if you had something that was a rectangle on the the glass of the projector, it would sort of be a trapezoid on the screen. And the more wide inflated part of that trapezoid would also, the lines would look thinner and they'd be harder to see and they'd sort of fade out. So um, it just didn't look very professional to me. Okay.
0: Students didn't understand the struggle. I, I went through <laughs> my undergrad with the carousels and everything else. And that's a real satisfying sound. It sounds like you're getting something done as those slides click in and out. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Mr. Bowen at Costa College had these beautiful few graphs. He did use the overhead projector, but he had taken a bunch of pic, uh, things. And I finally found the old book many years later. I think it was, I think the author's name was Lobeck or something. And it was, um, these were Pen and ink drawings of sort of like three-dimensional cutout cross sections of like chunks of the Earth, and on the sort of top surface would be some geomorphological landform. And this, they were just beautiful drawings illustrating how a geologic process leads to a shape on the Earth's surface. And I just I loved looking at those drawings. I just thought that was really neat that people were looking at what they saw on the top and they were imagining what was going on underneath and there i was again taking apart a toaster so (laughs) i have a lot of you know uh, a kind of uh, nostalgia for the, the good old days when people drew with ink by hand really beautiful illustrations to try to get a point across um one of the things computers are not good at is is really making art out of things and one of the things i spent a long time on banging my head against uh, in my career was uh, working with the international committee that deals with global ocean floor depth uh, maps. And there was a conflict during the 20 years or so I was with them between a sort of an older guard that thought that the maps that had been drawn by hand by human beings were, were still the most aesthetically beautiful and a newer group that wanted to make sure that computers were being used so that the latest data were always being incorporated and, uh, uh, you know, that things were as close to the actual measurements as they could be so that there wouldn't be anything subjective in the interpretation. And the problem is so little of the ocean is mapped that you can't really rely on a machine interpolation algorithm to fill gaps as smartly as a human can until satellite altimetry came along and provided a good way of of filling the gaps. But I, I, I had this debate a lot with people between, you know, whether we should use... Computers and quantitative stuff and theories and algorithms to fill the holes in our knowledge or whether we should um, let uh, a human sense of what was artistic fill the hole.
1: So during grad school, I actually gave a talk where I followed. I'd read an article about John Wheeler of Wheeler Labs, who would go into a room before he gave a talk and fill all of the chalkboards with beautiful color hand drawings and never actually showed a slide plot of data. And uh, so I, I tried to talk like that once and it worked really well because yeah, you don't get lost in, uh, I can plot 2 million data points with the computer and people can get lost in the details or talking about noise profiles or all kinds of things and miss the story that you're trying to give. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that those schematic representations are really undervalued. I think I agree.
2: Yeah. They, they convey a lot. Um, uh, I had an interesting experience once uh, there was a woman who is not from a science background, but from a sort of a writing and and rhetoric and creative writing background who became intrigued by the story of Marie Tharp. Um, She read an obituary. The New York Times Sunday Magazine used to have this, maybe they still do this feature the last Sunday of each year where they have an issue called The Lives They Led. And it's got a whole lot of one pagers on people who died that year and somebody who writes just a short appreciation of why they think that person was interesting. And there was a story about Marie Tharp, who was a person who drew uh, by hand with pen and ink uh, uh, illustrations of what the topography of the ocean floor might look like. Um, And this uh, woman, uh, Holly Felt, read this and got intrigued and ended up writing a, a a book about marie and uh she and i then got a, invited to do a sort of a university tag team kind of lecture one time and um we sort of settled on on maps as being kind of um arguments for process like those cross-sectional diagrams in Lobeck's book where you're saying not just saying this is how something looks but you're saying It looks this way because, you know, it's been generated this way. And so there's sort of an argument about um, mechanism. I I came up with that because uh, uh, some people wanted to say that Marie was the first person to talk about seafloor spreading and a rift valley down the Mid-Ocean Ridge and uh, so on. And yet you can go back and find stuff long before her German atlases of the 1920s and so on, where there were lots and lots of profiles crossing the Atlantic that showed a valley in the middle of the mid-Atlantic ridge. And I guess the way out of this dilemma, you know, did Marie really discover something or not, is to say that she's the person who called it a rift valley, which means it's no longer just a a valley, which is a description of its shape, but a rift valley is a statement about what's making it be a valley. And um, by sort of popularizing that, I think she she pushed us uh, toward plate tectonics.
0: She was also uh, one of the few women uh, petroleum geologists, and she worked in Tulsa at Standard Oil as well. Yes. And she got, uh, yeah, she got her degree in mathematics from TU while she was a geologist at Standard Oil. We just had yeah. a big talk about her and celebrating women at APG. So,
2: yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, she's she's quite an interesting uh, character, and the people. She worked with were very interesting characters, and it's a kind of an interesting uh, little slice of uh, of history of science.
1: Yeah,
0: it absolutely is. Um, I love that you guys both are very hardcore computer people, and we're talking about the importance of hand drawing uh, geologic processes. <laughs> this this well, makes me really happy.
2: <laughs> well, exactly, and I think that for me, it you know, it goes back to to taking apart the toaster. I wasn't really a computer geek I sort of learned it because I had to and uh, part of it was it was fun I mean while we were students and Tony was away and letting us play with figuring out or how figuring out how to replace Porsche with a laser writer um <laughs> it was uh you know it was it was all about learning C which for me was totally different from Fortran because there were all these things that in that time I don't know if it does it now but at that time Fortran couldn't do like linked lists and uh reallocating memory to change the size of an array on the fly as you discover that you have more or less data than you thought you did and things like that. And so I was having a lot of fun. Uh, oh, shoot, I just I had a senior moment and totally lost. Oh, right, right. <laughs> computer geek, sorry. So, yeah, um, well, the hand-drawn versus the computer thing. I find the reason I like to write my own code, and I still do, is that I, it's part of the Part of the inside of the toaster thing and it's partly not wanting to take anybody else's word for something and i think that you know the probably the best scientists are people who aren't who don't stop until their own curiosity is satisfied they don't want to uh, uh you know take somebody else's word for it and so i can't really trust somebody else's black box code i really want to know exactly what's happened to those numbers from the time they were ones and zeros coming off the spacecraft until the time when we make some interpretation of what they mean. I wanna make sure that I know what's been done, how they were calibrated and validated and all this kind of stuff. And so I just feel safer doing it myself. But then the art of it is, you know, can you do something with the machine as well as an experienced human being would have? Or conversely, can you use the machine to show that those human beings that are doing something artistic are also doing something very subjective and probably not Um, probably not really supported by the data. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So you alluded to data coming off a spacecraft, which is what you do now, right?
2: Yes. um, I'm in a group uh, at NOAA that uses um, satellite altimeters, which are gadgets that look down at the surface of the Earth from space and they measure essentially measure the distance from themselves to the surface of the Earth. And while they're doing that, we're also tracking exactly where they are So we can get the height of Earth's surface uh, in a, you know, a coordinate system that can measure, for example, right down to the center of the Earth or something. So one of the things we do is we measure sea levels this way and we track uh, sea level rise and sea level variability. Um, And the other thing that's cool about these things, they're using radar. And if you're on the ocean, for example, the tops of the waves return the radar pulse back to the satellite just a few nanoseconds before the troughs of the waves. The the time it takes, the difference in time it takes between radar energy coming off the peaks of waves and the troughs of waves, which is only a few nanoseconds, allows us to measure wave height. And then the roughness of the sea surface at the scale of sort of grains of rice, the things that are called capillary waves, that uh, depends on how much wind speed there is. Uh, And so we're able to measure wind speed and wave height as well as uh, water surface heights, ice surface heights, things like that uh, with these gadgets. And so we use them in real time applications. Uh, NOAA, the National Weather Service here in the US, which is part of my agency, NOAA, has responsibility for high seas forecasts for forecasting the weather to ships at sea over a vastly much larger area than the land area of the United States. Um, And then we also use anomalies in sea level to do all kinds of things, uh, understand tsunami propagation, hurricane intensification, uh, currents in the water, Um, they have military applications, um, Coast Guard search and rescue applications, um, all kinds of stuff. And uh, they also show us the gravity anomalies that are caused by topography on the ocean floor, which is how I I got into this, because I did my PhD in the gravity department at Lamont.
1: So radar is the, the primary tool that you're using. How accurately can you measure the the surface hider? and Because that's convolved with any positioning error in the satellite. So are we looking at centimeters or millimeters or meters?
2: Well, that's a great question. And um, the answer depends in part on how much averaging in space and time you're willing to do of the data. And then the other uh, piece of the answer uh, sort of if I get nitpicky I have to distinguish between accuracy and precision um, the scattering of the radar off of the ocean surface is a sort of random uh, scattering process but we can so what we get essentially as a as an uh, an echo of a pulse uh, is a like a random noise waveform and the way we detect that the Echo has come back is simply that the power and the random noise has gone up from background levels, um, but we can make statistically independent measurements of that at thousands of times per second, and the satellites are moving at uh, about seven kilometers a second, so um, we can essentially get. Uh, new information every few meters. In fact, there's a new way of processing the data, which is something that a colleague and I have just recently invented, which gives us statistical independence and in measurement about every half meter. And that's sort of revolutionizing things. So with statistically independent randomness, we can then average a lot of things and trade off how much precision we want versus how much averaging we're willing to accept, which would depend on the size of the physical phenomenon you're trying to measure, whether it's an ocean current or a Uh, you know, something like that. Um, The accuracy actually comes into things that have less to do with the radar measurement and more to do with, as you said, where is the spacecraft in space? Um, The errors in orbits now are down to sort of millimeter scale. Um, And then uh, also things like, is the time it takes the radar energy to propagate uh, being a little bit delayed? Does the round-trip take a little longer than it would take if it moved at the speed of light and vacuum? And the answer is yes, it's slowed by water molecules in the troposphere particularly, and uh, charged particles in the ionosphere. And so as the uh, humidity of air changes and the ionosphere currents change and so on, that makes uh, small um, changes. But we have other ways of, of measuring and dealing with that. So at, at one extreme of averaging, if you average over the entire globe and over many months, there's no doubt about the rate of globally average sea level rise, so something like 3.7 millimeters per year. And all the different satellites uh, that can do this give us the same number very accurately. And all of them incidentally show sea level rise has been accelerating over the last few decades. So that's a 10th you know, of a millimeter per year. It's a pretty exciting level of uh, precision. But on the other hand, if you're trying to um, look at a lead in sea ice, which is a crack where ice that's floating on the ocean surface is cracked open and there's a little bit of unfrozen water in that crack. If the crack's only a few meters wide, and you'd like to be able to tell the difference between the height of the water and the height of the top surface of the ice floating above it, so you could measure what we call ice freeboard, which gives us a clue to the thickness of the ice. Um, then that's really tricky because you've got only a few measurements in that little gap of water, and so you don't have a lot of averaging at your disposal. And so that's the that's kind of the frontier area right now is is how do we make things like that better?
0: So is the weather service the main consumer of this? I don't you know I get most of my satellite info from John, so I just want to know, like, what is what are these data going into forecast mostly?
2: Well, for the wind speed and wave height stuff, and if it's it's got to be fresh, they want they right. don't want data that's a few hours old. They want data right. that's now. Um, that for high seas forecasts, yes. Um, okay. The sea surface height anomalies have all kinds of applications because there's what we might call weather. In the ocean, in the same way that there's sort of weather in the atmosphere, and and um, I guess we don't see it so much anymore, but but you used to see in newspapers uh, a weather map, and it would have high pressure and low pressure things, and sort of contours of, of air pressure, and the winds would would follow around those contours rather than blowing from high pressure to low pressure. They they go around because of the Coriolis phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so the, the gradually these high and low pressures drift across the country. And that gives us the change in weather that changes on a scale of days. Well, in the same way in the ocean, except it's on a scale of weeks, we have high and low pressure systems, although we call them uh, warm core and cold core eddies. They're eddies that are shed from currents like the Gulf Stream. And they sort of gradually drift around and the, the kind of fronts between cold and warm water show up as steps in sea level in these altimeter data. And in fact, how much unusually warm water, let's say how deep from the surface, how far down can you go and still be warmer than average? That's the answer to that tells you how much extra energy there is to fuel the intensification of a hurricane, for example. And the thermal expansion integrated over that depth range gives you an anomalously high sea level. So the height of a sea level anomaly tells you how much excess heat is stored in the ocean that's important for another kind of forecasting like the hurricane intensification it's important for watching those warm and cold blobs move around to understand how the ocean circulates and it has military applications because changes in the temperature and salinity and essentially the how many molecules of water occupy a certain volume that affects the speed of sound in seawater. And so these warm and cold blobs, this essentially weather in the ocean, is also like uh, lenses that would diffuse or focus sound propagation are also sort of drifting around in the ocean. So there's like weather in the ocean's ability to transmit sound. And so if your job is to operate submarines stealthily, or your job might be to make sure that nobody else's submarines are in a certain box, um, then you really need to know about this. So one of the customers for the data sets is the Navy, and they assimilate this into a model of the ocean that tells their warfighters the uh, situational awareness that they need. Another customer would be the Coast Guard, because if you get a man overboard call or a ship in distress call, you want to know where is that going to drift on the surface. So you have to have a model that's ready to predict what the currents are doing. Um, So there's a lot of uses for this Uh, in addition to global sea level rise, climate change, um, El Nino, uh, that sort of thing. And the really bizarre esoteric use of it is the one that uh, I had sort of 15 minutes of fame for a long time ago. Um, if you have a mountain on the ocean floor, the gravitational attraction of the mountain pulls extra water to that area and tilts the direction in which gravity pulls, that is the direction in which a dropped object would fall. And because it does that, it also tilts the surface of the sea. And so without having to see through the water to the bottom, just using the radar to see the top surface of the water, uh, we were able to figure out where the gravity anomalies in the ocean are. And that allowed us to infer where the mountains on the ocean floor are. And because only a few percent of the ocean has actually had its depths measured properly, uh, this was a big breakthrough.
1: So it's similar to doing the terrain correction, but in reverse then, as we would think of it on normal land geophysics?
2: Kind of, sort of. I'm not sure I would say terrain correction, but but yes. Well, okay, you could see it that way. Yes, if you had terrain it would cause variations in gravity that you would correct for, yeah, this is sort of the other way around. You're using the variations of gravity to refer the, infer the terrain. Yeah, I guess you could say that.
1: Okay, yeah, because I'm used to doing a, on a land gravity survey trying to remove the effects of those pesky mountains uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from my data.
2: Okay. Exactly. Well, this is sort of the other way around and saying where are the mountains because you don't have, you wouldn't have a topographic map at all, but you would have a, a pretty densely detailed map of the gravity field. And so then the question would be where are the mountains? okay.
0: Uh, but since gravity is non-unique, they could be mountains or they could be massive, you know, piles of whales that don't move, right? Right?
2: Yes, um, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Uh, but but what, what tends to save you here is that the, uh, if uh, this doesn't work very well if you're on a continental shelf and you've got um, thick piles of sediment being eroded from continental land, But if you're out in the middle of the ocean where the ocean floor was generated by a seafloor spreading uh, faulting and volcanism kind of process and the sedimentation rate is very low because the only thing that's putting sediment there is basically planktonic organisms dying and having their shells uh, fall down to the bottom like snowfall Mm -hmm. at a very slow rate. Then the topography of the ocean floor is almost the topography of the surface of the difference between water and volcanic rock, and that's a huge difference in density. Um, You mentioned whales. I'm not a biologist. I don't know anything about (laughs) critters, but I would guess that critters that (laughs) can float in the sea or can swim in the sea have a a net density that is not very much different from the density of the seawater at the level at which they swim, otherwise they would tend to pop to the surface or sink (laughs) to the bottom. And so um, you could you could fill the ocean up with whales and you'd hardly change the mass distribution. Whereas if you take an area that ought to be seawater and you fill it instead with volcanic rock, there's a huge difference in density. And so that produces a huge gravity anomaly for a given amount of topography. If you had the same topography below the seafloor on an interface between one kind of rock and another or one kind of sediment and another, the change in density would be so small that although you had a lot of topography, you wouldn't generate very much gravity. So what really saves you in this application is that the easiest way to make a gravity anomaly, the, the by far the biggest source of gravity anomaly, is topography on a seafloor with thin sediment where most of the seafloor is made of volcanic rock. Anything else that would cause a change in density is a very small change in density, but that one is a huge change. And so if you attribute almost all of the gravity anomaly at certain length scales to seafloor topography under certain conditions, you're probably right to first order.
1: Okay, yeah, that Fine. makes sense. I, I didn't think about the, uh, <laughs> the the potential sources of the density contrast there. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, you're, you're measuring sea surface height, but can you also use this uh, technique to measure things like floodwater inundation when hurricanes do make landfall?
2: Yes, uh, you can. Um, I have a colleague who's been looking at a floodplain in uh, Vietnam. I think it is called Prek which is some sort of place where, at one season of the year, it's flooded and they grow rice, and then at another season, it, it dries out, and you can uh, you can measure the water levels and that. People are measuring water levels in rivers and that sort of thing. Um, one of the interesting problems for in right now is as we're uh, recording this. Um, the uh, hurricane Florence is uh, really doing a number on the Carolinas and there are lots of pictures of, uh, uh, flooding and so on. If you have, I mean, in a scene like that, the area that the radar is going to see is going to be both the water and the tops of houses and other things. So the radar echo from something like that might look really complicated, but I, in fact, I'm sort of looking at some of these data today. That's one of the things I'm working on. But, um, in principle, yes, you should be able to measure, uh, these things. We were able to measure the, uh, the uh, storm surge from Hurricane Katrina in front of New Orleans and uh, from Hurricane Sandy in front of New York and so on with these satellite altimeters. So that's another application. I should caution people, we don't have an enormous swarm of these things in the sky, so we're not looking everywhere all the time. So you would not want to use a satellite altimeter to uh, be the only source of a warning system for something that moves fast, like a tsunami. That kind of warning the public has to be done differently in that situation. Um, storm surge is pretty predictable and moves pretty slowly. And so what we use them for in this case is to verify the forecast models and see if the models need to be tuned up. And and in the same way with a tsunami after the fact, we can go in and use the altimeter to see whether the, the tsunami uh, Propagation model was a good one
1: So are most of these satellites in polar orbits sun synchronous style or are they highly inclined orbits? Uh, what is the typical operation mode for these?
2: Um, well, NOAA tends to think of satellites as having only two flavors uh, geostationary and um, polar and by polar, they almost always mean uh, sun synchronous and um, in fact, not all of uh, these are, if you only have those two categories, you'd say they're polar because they're not geostationary, but, um, if, but they don't go exactly over the poles. In fact, sun-synchronous orbits don't. They miss the poles by a few degrees, um, and you actually don't want an altimeter in sun-synchronous orbits if you're trying to study tides because a sun-synchronous orbit would alias all the tidal forcing to zero frequency. In other words uh, if, if every time you fly over the earth you're making the same angle with respect to the earth's sun line then the local solar time where you're measuring is never changing that's the definition of sun synchronous it's easy to build a satellite to do that because the solar panels are always going to face the sun at the same angle and so the power management and the heat management is easy but a lot of altimeters are put in very specialized orbits so they cover not all the way to the pole but a lot of latitude a latitude where most of the ocean area is for example but they cover it in a very peculiar way so that the various uh lunar forced and solar forced tidal species all alias into the data set at very different frequencies so we can study ocean tidal motion and in fact a whole lot of really cool things were learned about tides from altimetry
1: okay that makes sense Well, one thing that we wanted to make sure that we touched on while we had you was working for NOAA and working for these federal agencies is not a career path that a lot of students may hear about. They may think, well, I'm going to go work in the private sector, or I'm going to go work in academia and be a professor. Uh, So what is working for a federal agency like?
2: It's been very good for me, I have to say. I've been very lucky. I have a lot of wonderful colleagues who are very stimulating to Uh, have around and to work with and collaborate with and who bring me really interesting problems to solve and uh over time i've gotten known enough in the agency that um you know i'm i'm sort of i'm trusted for various things and so on and that all feels good i've had a few mentors here over the years who who saw something in me and got me into something that i wouldn't necessarily have chosen on my own but turned out to be absolutely wonderful um the fellow who was the director of the um I forget what it was called. It was the Marine Geophysical Data Repository at the National Geophysical Data Center in Boulder, Colorado, and who went on to become uh, director of the NGDC. Mike Lockridge is the one who got me started with this international UN group that does uh, seafloor mapping, something called Jebco, the Committee for the General Bathymetric Charts of the Oceans. Um, So that's been good. I have to say that um, when I was a graduate student, the... uh, People who did their PhDs with me and then went on to get professorships at, at big research universities were the ones that the, their mentors always talked about them very proudly. And if, But if a student went off and decided to teach at a small liberal arts college or you know go to work in the oil industry or something like that, the, their mentors didn't really talk about what they were doing. It was sort of like they had, had shamed the family and died of some unspeakable disease. <laughs> And so I kind of had that attitude, like, you know, I really belong as an academic because you asked me a simple question and I talked for 50 minutes. Um, and, and I didn't really know what government was. I didn't know this job existed. And I started getting recruited for it after I'd been a postdoc at Scripps for a while. And I remember going out to lunch at an AGU meeting with um, Seth and Carol Stein and asking them whether... I should pay attention to this recruitment and whether I should take this job. And they said, wait, you mean you could do curiosity-driven research full-time with um, a civil service salary? So you wouldn't have to write any grant proposals and you wouldn't have to serve on that stupid faculty parking space committee. And (laughs) you know, you wouldn't have to teach, you know, rocks for jocks and moons for goons and quakes for flakes and all those things. And I said, "Yeah, I kind of think that's what they're saying." And they said, "God, why wouldn't anybody take that job?" <laughs> so, so I did, and I've I've been very happy here. Well, mostly the the aspects of bureaucracy drive me crazy, of course, but um, but all in all, it's been very good for me.
0: John and I have diverged on um, our career paths in a very similar manner. You could sum that up as. Exactly what you just said, I think, don't you, John? Uh, yes, very much so. Um, and
1: <laughs> yeah. so one thing that I'm always curious to hear uh, from people is what is something that they're excited about technologically right now? So you've got this job where you can do all of this, uh, as you put it, the curiosity-driven research, and you have access to satellite data sets and all kinds of fun things. What is a, what's something that's coming up that you're really excited to, to learn from?
2: Well, I'm going to give you an answer that's going to be very narrow to my very narrow interest. But Before I do that, let me just say something I think I just learned about a while ago and I think is totally cool. Um, I got asked to come to a, a kind of a meeting of all the people at NOAA that were doing new innovative measurements and new innovative ways of doing things. And they all just kind of presented what they were doing. So NOAA has all these different parts. We've talked about the weather service. One of the interesting parts is the National Marine Fisheries Service, and they have a very difficult job, which is to make sure that, on the one hand, fishermen are able to make enough money fishing, but on the other hand, the oceans aren't overfished and everything's sustainable, and that's a really hard line to walk. But what I didn't know is they're responsible for monitoring the health of certain kinds of whales, and what they were showing was that they're flying drones out to sample whale breath in the whale's (laughs) blowholes. And... I thought that was totally amazing and I asked about it and they said, well, we used to send graduate students, you know, and have them kind of stick a jug or a swab in there, but they have to get close enough to the whale on a kind of like a little flimsy rubber dinghy with an outboard motor or something. And if the whale got irritated, it would whack its tail and then you'd have to get a new graduate student. So so this drone thing is really cool. So I think that there are new ways of sampling that are going to revolutionize things. Drones is going to be one. Uh, nanosats and cubesats, which a lot of people are happy about, is another. I actually think in satellite altimetry, we are not going to see nanosats and cubesats uh, being really useful to us um, anytime soon. But um, the particular thing that I've been working on with a colleague, Alejandro Ejido, is something we call fully focused SAR altimetry. We've actually been able to take all these radar echoes from satellite altimeters, which historically, because they're a random... Uh, scattering process from the rough earth surface, the, the energy that comes back should be random in its phase of the electromagnetic field. And so historically, people looked at the power without considering the phase. But it's been shown that you can actually exploit changes in phase, which essentially is sorting the data into Uh, another dimension, uh, which is Doppler frequency, basically. And so you can tell whether a radar scatterer is in front of you or behind you by whether it's blue-shifted or red-shifted. And Alejandro and I have shown you can actually do that in such a detailed way that the radar beams essentially come into focus. And uh, that's how we get this sort of independent measurement every half meter or so. And so I think that we're going to find out that, that old technologies can be reprocessed to give us you know, vastly new amounts of information. And I uh, particularly what we're going to be able to do with our fully focused SAR invention is something I'm really excited about. I'm supposed to go to uh, uh, the European Space Agency's Research Center later this week and have a meeting with them about uh, what we can do with this now and with future satellites. And that's going to be a lot of fun.
0: Oh, what is the one thing that you can't do your job without? And this doesn't have to be technology.
2: I couldn't possibly do my job without my brilliant colleagues. Um, they they keep me, um, you know, excited about stuff. They uh, keep setting an example to aim high and uh, and do the best I can. Um, they bring me all kinds of opportunities and questions that are really fun. That's um, sort of uh, the best. I, I guess maybe you thought I was going to say canned beer or something like <laughs> that.
0: I was Um, just going to say, I wish I worked with you now. If that's what you think,
2: that's real great. (laughs) Well, I just, I mean, that's what really makes it fun every day uh, for me. Um, I mean, I I am somebody who needs some quiet and solitude in order to be able to think. But at the same time, I'm really sparked by interaction with other people. And so I kind of need the right balance of both. And I've been very lucky to have that here.
1: Excellent. And then so the the last question sort of in this this series of looking forward is, what do you think the state of satellite altimetry will be in 10 years?
2: Well, um, I was not good at forecasting the outcome of the last presidential election in the United States. And so (laughs) uh, my ability to see 10 years into the future is probably uh, doubtful. Many years ago, I led a big team of academic and government people to propose a new satellite altimeter mission to NASA, and we were not selected. So I'm not um, always good at reading the future. Um, But satellite altimetry is very much uh, dominated right now by our European colleagues, and I think it will be probably more so uh, in the next 10 years. I think uh, nanosats, cubesats, microsats are not going to help us because of the rather strict desire we have for knowing to the millimeter level where our satellites are and how accurately they're pointed at the Earth. But I think um, this fully focused calculation and combination of KU and KA band altimetry, these are different wavelengths of radar, uh, is probably going to be able to open up some really interesting things we can do with watching the last of the polar ice on Earth quickly disappear and things like that.
1: All right. And is there anything else that you'd like to, uh, to add or tell our listeners?
2: Um, I, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm in a sense a really bad example because I didn't plan my career. I, I just got here by serendipity, and I wouldn't recommend to anyone that the start to a great career is to be a high school dropout, and yet there I am. Uh, I don't really know what to say, but I, as I think I said, I, there were lots of forks in the road, and I tried to guess which one would be the most fun. And as a result, after all these years, I'm still having a lot of fun. And, um, you know, your day job is something you're going to have to do a lot of your life just to put bread on the table for your family. So you might as well be having fun. I mean, that's really all I can all I can say. And sometimes it takes, you know, risky Trying different things before you find the thing that's really fun. Um, I, I see the pressure on kids today. I have a senior and a freshman in high school, my two girls, and uh, you know they think they have to get straight A's and get into selective colleges and know what they want to major in and all that sort of thing. And I came up at a time when the same pressures were not on. It wasn't so competitive. I don't really have. Any advice for a young person today, but I hope they all end up having lots of fun, because if you're able to play with your curiosity and take the toaster apart, you're going to make discoveries. And I guess the other advice is do something in the oceans, because they're so unexplored. If you want to make a new discovery in science, uh, you'll you'll be able to do it in the oceans. Nobody knows anything. <laughs>
1: Oh, great. And if uh, some of our listeners want to keep up with you and your research, how would you like to be found on the Internet?
2: Um, I'd like to be found on the Internet as little as possible. I'm not a big (laughs) social media person. I uh, don't uh, have a big um, presence. I'm not, you know, tweeting and on uh, Instagram and Facebook and all these things that uh, allow people to tell us how to vote. Um, I Uh, do have a a sort of a bio page that noah maintains for me Um, and uh, interestingly there are two people named walter smith at NOAA, and both of us have a middle initial h and both of us work in the same building but if you google uh, walter h f smith uh, NOAA star n-o-a-a and space s-t-a-r you'll probably come to my bio page and from there you'll have my um uh, I, my various scholarly IDs, if you're looking for my published work and that sort of thing. So, um, you can start, uh, and find me there and I do, uh, answer email, not always immediately, but I'm, I'm happy to do it. I don't, uh, expect to have a, you know, an Elvis scale fan club after this, but, but who knows? Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, great. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. It's been a lot of fun.
2: Well, thank you. I've had a lot of fun too. I hope when you asked me about GMT, I remember to say what a real thrill it was to be Paul's uh, office mate and uh, and learn uh, some things from from him. he's uh, he's uh, always been a fantastic inspiration and uh, terrific friend.
1: Well, Shannon, that was super fascinating and a wonderful career track. <laughs>
0: Yeah. (laughs) I love it so much. And I hope that everyone takes from, well, not just from Walter, but from everyone else we talked to. Like, you never know where you're going to wind up, man. And just because you think you're unsuccessful one year or five years in a row doesn't mean that that is
1: true. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, So Mm -hmm. now it's time for something entirely different, (laughs) which means it's everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay.
0: Speaking of unsuccessful. <laughs>
1: well, I, I think this was a very effective study. Uh, so
0: that is true.
1: <laughs> this came from listener Daryl, and he pointed out that he thinks this is the first follow-up to a fun paper. So we've been doing this long enough that not only did the paper get published, but now a follow-up has been published.
0: <laughs> I love it so much because the first paper was so good. I didn't know how you could follow it up.
1: Yeah, so the, the first paper was about parachutes, and it was sort of making fun of evaluation procedures for medical drugs, saying, well, we need to conduct a double-blind trial of parachutes to be sure they're effective.
0: Right. <laughs> right, exactly.
1: So this paper <laughs> is parachute use to prevent death and major trauma when jumping from aircraft, randomized controlled trial <laughs> by yet at all.
0: <laughs> so in the BMJ, um, as we always talk about them, we love their abstracts, right? Because they outline all the parts, the results and conclusions of the paper. And I got really disturbed reading this. <laughs> we
1: well, at yeah, first, but wait, they're gonna, because the methods are: we sit down next to somebody on an airplane, look over at them, and say. <laughs> Hi, I'm doing a study. Would you like to be randomly assigned to one of two groups? One that has a parachute and one that has an empty North Face backpack and then jump out of this aircraft.
0: Oh, right. Exactly. (laughs) I love it. And I kept reading and thought, oh, God, there's figures too.
1: (laughs) So (laughs) initially you think, what? And they do say that they tried various aircraft altitudes and speeds. Mm -hmm. in this trial and Mm -hmm. as it turns out everybody that was at a high altitude or high speed i.e actually flying declined to participate in the randomized trial (laughs) but everybody that was at a mean altitude of 0.6 meters traveling zero kilometers per hour agreed to participate in the study
0: (laughs) Uh, which is a great action shot i will say
1: yeah, so they found a bunch of people that said, yeah, I'll do it, because the airplane's sitting on the ground and not moving. And some of them jumped off with the parachute on, some of them jumped off with the parachute not on. And the results were dramatically significant and showed that parachutes aren't effective in preventing death or major trauma.
0: That's right. That The statistics were very surprising, I will say. <laughs> oh that was beautiful that's a beautiful follow-up
1: well and <laughs> they so of course here the point is to illustrate well you think double blind trials are bad let's talk about participant bias <laughs> and in in the spirit of this i also think they spent potentially as much time on the acronym as they did the actual study so the acronym <laughs> for the study was participation in randomized trials comprised by widely held beliefs about lack of treatment equipoise. And if you take a very random subset of those letters, it spells parachute.
0: (laughs) I will just say I had to look up equipoise. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I felt real bad about that, and I thought, no, John definitely had to look that up too. (laughs) Yeah, so this was a,
1: uh, again, a sort of... I don't know, what would you call this a statement paper <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, but it follows all the all the same rules that real studies do it mm-hmm. has the same problems that real studies do and it comes to a conclusion that because this is not about the effects of some drug on some disease uh, we can say well this conclusion though statistically very strong is bogus
0: right yeah exactly exactly (laughs) um yeah and the study adds that the lack of enrollment of individuals at high risk could have influenced the results of this trial (laughs) right (laughs) they have to acknowledge it that's all
1: yeah and they also they they tried jumping from a biplane as well as a helicopter (laughs) no no significant difference difference. yeah
0: you know, I, I See, was waiting
1: for the one data point, though, where somebody just jumped off the wing of the biplane, but like tripped and, tripped. and rolled their exactly. ankle. <laughs> that's,
0: that's exactly what I thought. I was like, there's no way I would have been in that biplane group and not bit the ground with my face. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and
1: then, I mean, what could that do? Because whether you had a backpack or a parachute on, well, it probably didn't make a difference.
0: That's right. You could have radically skewed the statistics one way or the other.
1: Oh. <laughs> Now you just feel very confident in all studies.
0: That's exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) The more papers papers I read, the less I trust any of us. That's what I have to say.
1: (laughs) Right. And, of course, this is open access, being BMJ, so you can go in and take a look at it yourself. Uh, But I I definitely agree with what you said. In fact, when I was talking to somebody earlier this week, I said I think the more that you delve into research and literature – Uh, the more you realize that we actually don't know much. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It could be both comforting and terrifying. You know, it just depends on what time of day I think that you think about it.
1: It also gives me an appreciation for certain aspects of engineering where it's like, well, you don't have to know the exact reason. You just have to know that it follows this, this fit. And you can use it to make a bridge that doesn't fall down or to make Ah. something that works right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to solve the equations of flight. It's fine. Just know that they work. Right. (laughs) Ridiculous.
1: (laughs) Well, if you have some results from your randomized study of whether parachutes or backpacks were effective when you jumped out of a plane, we would love to have those results along with any comments about the show. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us?
0: Uh, Shoot us an email, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Come hang out with us in the Slack chat room, the software underground. or on the Don't Panic channel. Uh, You can find us on Twitter. Don't forget to make John's lights blink (laughs) by tweeting him blink at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you may do so. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo.
1: And until next week, have a Merry Christmas, and don't panic.
0: It's not an exact science. Ho, ho, ho.
1: Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or
2: funding agencies.